I think the primary attitude should be one of humility. Uh, recognizing the fallibility of our human reason, the profound fallibility of our self-understanding. Uh, we are often completely uh, mistaken about the best of our intentions. And having that sense that even at the, at the moments where we think that we have a pristine perspective of, on things, that we are absolutely sure that we know what you're talking about, that we know that our positions are so beautifully true and good and cannot be questioned, understanding that that might not be true and that I need to be in the presence of some other individual, some interlocutor, some conversation partner might be one of the most important attitudes that we can bring to any dialogue. The art of dialogue and the importance of being able to hold space for conversations in which perspectives may differ from ours is more important now than ever. It is essential for our growth that we are aware of our own internal biases, our limitations of understanding, and why the walls of defensiveness rise up when we hear viewpoints that we don't agree with. So what are the skills that are needed in order to have a productive conversation? How do we enter into meaningful dialogue with other? Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are talking with Dr. Ante Jarantrik, professor of ethics at Andrews University, on the art of dialogue. You can follow him on Instagram at jarantrik.ante, or you can subscribe to his YouTube channel, Artis Vivende by Ante Jarantrik. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at Advent Next. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. A, a big part of, of, I think, the conversations that people are wanting to have today is how to have a good conversation. And how do you deal with people who are kind of not in the same space as you? So I want to turn this over to uh, uh, Dr. Ante Jaranchik. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's it's really a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so I I just want to kind of give them a little sample of our conversation that we're going to be having. So how do we understand dialogue? I mean, where does this whole concept come from? And what are some things that we can start to learn about this in order to bring it into our present day life, especially in, in very tense situations like we're experiencing today? Yeah, well, uh, again, I wanted to thank you once more and uh, to, for inviting me. And it's really uh, just a privilege to discuss this important issue, especially uh, at a time in which we find ourselves in when we are dealing with so many challenges in our culture. Those for us who are Christians, there's so many different dialogues that we are taking place in our faith community. And so uh, the issue of what is really a good dialogue and what is the purpose of dialogue is something that is so incredibly important. And what I hope to do perhaps in our conversation as we go along, before we even go into the nitty gritty aspects of, of dialogue, of what dialogue means and how to go about dialoguing with each other, especially when we have very different vantage points and very different life experiences and very different socio sort of historical backgrounds that we think about the importance of dialogue in general and where is this idea coming from? 
both in the larger culture, but also in scripture. Obviously, as Christians, we're deeply interested in that. And when we go back, when we think about this uh, dialogue and the notion of dialogue, we are obviously talking about something that has a very long tradition. Uh, most of us will be familiar with the notion of Socratic dialogue, something that we find in Plato's work where uh, Plato's books, the philosopher Plato's books from the 5th century BC, which are written in this kind of dialogical sort of format, where Socrates is usually dialoguing with someone for the purpose of examining some important questions in the pursuit of truth and in the pursuit of wisdom. And this kind of Greek word for that, like Socraticus Logos, this Socratic dialogue, has been so central for our collective consciousness. And even nowadays, be it in pedagogical settings or be it in therapeutic settings, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, this Socratic dialogue plays an incredibly important role. So this is just one of the source, broader cultural source, in especially in Western culture, where the notion of sort of dialogue can be uh, found as having its origin origin in. So just for some of our listeners out there, um, so just for some of our listeners out there who, who kind of might not be familiar with some of the history of dialogue, one question that I want to just kind of leave with them that maybe we can just give them a little taste test is what's kind of one thing that somebody should bring to the table when they are dialoguing with somebody else who has a different viewpoint than them? Uh, you know, whether we're dealing with kind of the tensions in our country or the tensions in our church communities or just friends who have not had the same life experiences as ourselves, like what's one thing that we could bring to you, just a, a listener, uh, one skill that they might want to consider when they're entering into that space? Well, obviously, when we talk about dialogue, and we are going to talk about, <laughs> we're going to discuss this quite a bit, hopefully, but obviously, we are bringing to the table certain. I would say certain practices and hopefully certain capacities or certain virtues that we have. Now, in terms of uh, certain practices or, or certain attitudes, I think the primary attitude should be one of humility, uh, recognizing the fallibility of our human reason, the profound fallibility of our self-understanding. Uh, we are often completely uh, mistaken about the best of our intentions. And having that sense that even at the, at the moments where we think that we have a pristine perspective of, on things, that we are absolutely sure that we know what you're talking about, that we know that our positions are so beautifully true and good and cannot be questioned, understanding that that might not be true, and that I need to be in the presence of some other individual, some interlocutor, some conversation partner, might be one of the most important attitudes that we can bring to any dialogue. So if I can pick anything, or I, if I can pick one thing, then certainly a, a proper sense of humility would be one of those key ingredients that we should have. I really love that. And I think that that's even kind of the point of this, uh, the show, right? We're wanting to bring in different perspectives and different minds to help us navigate difficult conversations. So before we get started, though, and this is honestly what I, I think I should do uh, anyway, is like, I just want to know a little bit of your story and who you are, because you kind of have an interesting story. Um, 
and I know we didn't talk about sharing this, but uh, just kind of a little bit of your background, uh, maybe even a bit of the sharing about your time in prison. That's right. Yes, yes. So I think for me, the, the interest in dialogue, especially the element of trying to understand someone who is other and who is different, understanding different contexts, different people, has to do a lot with my, I would say, autobiography and with my own life story. Um, I was born in a former Yugoslavia, but when I was just two months old, my parents moved to Germany. So I grew up in a different context in a context where that was very, I would say, accepting of foreigners, but also excluding of foreigners. I remember going to school and seeing those graffitis, you know, foreigners get out, and even getting to stores uh, where, I mean, German was my first, my my language that, that I spoke, obviously, as an immigrant kid, but when they would ask me in the store what my name was, I would actually give a different name. I wouldn't say Ante, I would say uh, Stefan, I would give a German word, German name, because I understood even then that they would look differently at me if I said a different name. And then moving back to Yugoslavia, living in South Africa, and then coming as an immigrant to the United States in my sort of mid to late 20s, um, I think all of that has to do a lot with trying to understand what it means to belong, what it means to understand. Uh, All of these are very different cultures, very different ways of thinking. So I think dialogue and as it relates to understanding, as it it relates to generally interpretation of different contexts has been close to me. Now, you've mentioned in our brief conversation, you know, in uh, not only did I grow up in a former Yugoslavia, but I also as a new convert Uh, to the Adventist Church and becoming a practicing Sabbath-keeping Christian uh, experienced a lot of problems in school and later on in the military where I was for a while uh, imprisoned for for religious beliefs and religious practices. Again, all of these uh, experiences of belonging and not belonging and trying to understand what it means to belong and try to understand others and hoping others can understand me all these experiences have really contributed to this this interest in in understanding understanding. Let me put it that way. <laughs> well, well, I mean, let, let let's jump into it. You know, like so. You know, uh, one of our first questions. You know, how do we understand dialogue? Understanding, understanding. Um, you know, we live in a society, especially America, where it is a country where you have people from all over the world, and Adventism in particular. It's a worldwide religion, right? People from all over the world are a part of it. So, uh, you know, how do we begin our journey of understanding other? I think we we begin by understanding ourselves. And we begin understanding ourselves. When I say understanding ourselves, I mean understanding ourselves as individuals, as we are, our own life story, but also understanding ourselves as humans, right? I believe that... Dialogue is not something that we just do from time to time. To be human means to be a dialogical creature. Like if you take seriously this notion that there is no part of myself that is not being touched by others, that there is no level of authenticity that has not been shaped in interaction with other voices, with models, with moral exemplars, 
you know, parents, teachers, models we see in scripture, Jesus, God, all of that. Then actually to talk about myself, to talk about my deepest core of my own identity means to invoke dialogical language. So in this, in this deepest sense, quite apart from the question of identity and how dialogue has shaped me as a specific you know, individual called Ante Jaroncic or Ante Jaroncic, there is something even, even deeper for, um, in terms of me as a, as a human person, a human being who is fundamentally always in the state of being addressed. I'm all, all, all the time being spoken to. I'm being lured out. I'm being challenged. I'm being invited. I've been, I, I'm being drawn, right? not just by individuals, not just by texts, but by works of arts, by nature. So I would say that our very existence is therefore this play of interaction. It is this field of dialogical engagement, engagements, right, between us and friends and family members, my community, my society, the age in which I live in, the very language that I use, the very categories of thinking, all of that is deeply, deeply dialogical. So I believe that as, you know, as Christians or as thinking, thinking uh, human beings, that we always need to, to uh, try to understand who we are and what, and what makes us tick and, and what are some of these, if I can use the word, deeper ontological issues, the deeper question of what it means to be human. And once you start thinking about it, you begin to realize, man, you know, we are, we are fundamentally created to be human beings in dialogue. This is essentially who we are. And this is how I begin my reflection on the importance of dialogue. This is incredible. You know, as you're talking, I, I love what you brought out about, you know, that as a human, we're constantly being tested, you know, as, as far as like, who are we? Where do we fit in this space, in the sphere of this existence uh, through not just conversations, but through works of art and, and through, you know, our just the communities that we surround ourselves with. How do you like one? How did um because you're approaching this also from an ethics background, right? Like that's your specialty. Um, so what are some of like uh, the ethical implications of, of how to approach dialogue? Because you're talking a lot about, you know, it, it's a kind of an introspective process. It's a discovery of self. Um, but what are some other things that you're coming to the table with when you're looking at this dialogue? Yeah. Okay. So this is just such a rich question. Thank you so much for asking it. You know, and there are many ways in which we could possibly unpack this. But let me give you perhaps one answer. And uh, you know, when we look when we look at the 20th century and uh, how it was shaped by many schools of thought and all of this, a very important school of thought is um, a kind of uh, an approach that is called dialogical personalism. But forget the name; the name doesn't really matter. It really is associated with thinkers such as Martin Buber and others who have realized that this I-you relationship is so central to who we are as human beings. We are Because we are always standing in relationship to other human beings, because we always have the presence of another who has dignity, who is claiming our respect, 
ethics is something, because of that reality, ethics some, is something at the very core of our existence. So what I said about dialogue a moment ago, about not being some, some sort of peripheral interest, the same thing I would like to say about ethics. Precisely because I am a person who stands in relation to others and I'm being addressed by others, the idea of ethical responsibility is absolutely crucial to our existence. Now, Buber, who wrote this book, I, I, Thou, um, or I, You, re refers to this as a type of engagement that is where I come to know someone not by dissecting them, not by controlling them, not by, not by defining them, not by putting them into a certain box, but I come with the realization that I can only understand the other if the other discloses himself or herself to me. Otherwise, I will never be able to understand him or her. And so when you combine this notion of the dignity of the other, the claim that the other has upon me simply by virtue of his or her worth, with the idea that I can only know the other and my responsibility to the other as the other reveals himself or herself to me, and then connected with this notion that I can only know that if I listen to, if I attend to, if I enter into a dialogue. So you can see how this relationship then between ethics and responsibility to the other and the notion of dialogue create this very important triangle which is at the heart of our existence. This is, this is again, this is incredible because I see so many you know, biblical ties to this, right? I mean, you're saying that we can only relate to somebody as they've revealed themselves to us and looking at our responsibility. Like I think about God, right? Like his, his entire approach for towards us is a continued revelation of himself. And through that revelation, we begin to learn how to relate and interact. And we also get to learn about ourselves uh, through that community and responsibility. So what are some of the, like, the theological frameworks that we can take as we're approaching uh, um, dialogue from this perspective as well as an ethical one? Yeah, yeah. So when you look about this, uh, if I can, this triangle that I mentioned, right, the, the kind of the ethical so dimension in the sense that the other person is, uh, is demanding of me uh, to recognize his or her worth or, or not to harm the individual. And this idea, so this kind of ethical responsibility that is there, the second element being this idea of the other person um, disclosing uh, the, the responsibility I have then, and then this idea that, and the finally, that I can only know this person as this person uh, opens himself or opens uh, himself, herself or himself to me is actually included at the, at, the, at the beginning of the Bible in the creation story through two basic categories. The first notion is this idea of the image of God. And the image of God is simply the kind of language that makes us realize that not only do we have certain capacities that in, in some way reflect the divine, whatever that might be, but it also, also assigns a worth and dignity to individuals, precisely because you are created in the image of God. It means that God is, by virtue of, of that creation, of your creation, there's, there's certain worth, a huge worth imparted onto you. So that is this language of ethical responsibility and all of that, and the worth that you have. 
And then the second idea that God created us, the human person, male and female, he created them, as it says in, in the beginning in Genesis, means that fundamentally we are human beings, again, who are dialogical, intersubjective uh, creatures, who find our meaning, realization, and fullness in dialogue and in relationship. So human worth and responsibility on the one hand, and the second element of relationality or intersubjectivity uh, as being part of that image of God really shows you how these central theological categories are placing the notion of dialogue and communication in general at a very deep theological foundation. Wow. I, I, I love that because, you know, we're talking about the intrinsic dignity of people. And I think that that, you know, how we can incorporate that when we begin to enter into a dialogue with somebody who is coming from a different perspective, a different life experience, a different worldview, right? To, to kind of keep the framework of that this person has intrinsic value and I'm going to uh, move forward within this in a kind of in a respectful notion and also hopefully allowing myself to really listen, right? To really hear this person um, and, and not kind of impose myself upon them or trying to strong arm them into somebody that I need them to be rather than just allowing a person to be who they are and to learn how to respect them based off of that interaction. Right. Absolutely. And all of us who have been in relationships, who have had significant others or friends and all of that, we know that such attentive presence is not easy. It is not easy purely on a, even just physiological level, just try paying attention to someone for half an hour and the sort of cognitive bandwidth that requires, it's enormous. It's just, it's not easy. That attentive listening to someone, especially when that other person um, disagrees with us or has a perspective that we cannot accept, or if it is someone whom we really know and we think that we in advance already know exactly what they're going to say. And, and just listen, to listen attentively, it is, it is not easy. So purely physiologically, it is a challenge. But also in terms of the fact that we always seek to impose our perspective. As a matter of fact, the ancient skeptics had a term, epoche, a Greek term, which meant simply the suspension of judgment. And people have used this term in therapeutic settings and other kind of settings this idea that I should be willing to listen and listen, but not with the, with the desire to immediately rebut or immediately reject or immediately come from a position as if I know already in advance what the truth is. And to have that suspension, to have the courage to have that epoche or suspension, and then also to understand the physiological aspect of that, just how, how taxing cognitively that is. The gift of attention and the gift of attentiveness at the root of dialogue is one of the greatest gifts we can give to other human beings. Hmm. I love that. You know, it's just even that simple statement. You know, if you're talking, you're not listening, right? If you're judging, you're probably not listening, right? Uh, you, you haven't entered into that space. So kind of bringing us kind of through the historicity of it, um, you know, what are some of the influ or who are some of the influential thinkers, um, you know, 
alongside of kind of the things that we have discovered through the Bible and through our interactions with God, who are some of the other influential thinkers who have really stressed the importance and this idea of, of, of dialogue? Right. So I think I mentioned uh, Martin Buber has been a very significant in that regard, there were some other thinkers, uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, who was a Russian thinker, but one, one person who has also kind of a, a strange name, might not be familiar to most people, is a German guy by the name Hans-Georg Gadamer, G-A-D-A-M-A-R, Gadamer. And he was a, a gentleman, a philosopher, who lived, you know, uh, up to um, 100 years or so. He was uh, he had a very long life. So his life spanned most of the 20th, 20th century. And he has been very, very influential. Even when people, if people don't know his name, he has impacted our thinking to a significant degree. And this is what, what he said, and the tradition of thinking in which he stand, stands kind of claims. Uh, that basically, this was his idea, that uh, to be human means to interpret. We are always interpreting human beings. This is not, again, something we do from time to time, right? And we always do it. And because we are a finite entity that stands in relationship to another finite entity, a text, a person, a sign or a symbol, we always need to interpret. So every reading of a newspaper, every conversation at the dinner table, even like rude gestures on the highway, they have to be uh, interpreted before we can really understand them. So this idea that you cannot separate reading from understanding, right? That every reading immediately implies interpretation has been kind of a central uh, notion that he developed. And he believed, and he actually liked to talk about the Tower of Babel, this, this symbol in the Old Testament where people you know, try to build this tower to reach God, and God kind of then you know, creates them in you know, a kind of situation where they cannot understand each other. This notion of people not being able to understand one another he uses that story to describe a fundamental human condition. That one of the, uh, uh, theologically we would say it, one thing that describes our fallenness, one, one aspect that really sort of characterizes this uh, idea of having fallen away from our true existence as the Bible presents it, presents it, it is that we are unable to understand each other. To be fallen, to be alienated from God, means to be alienated from one another. And one way in which this alienation is being reflected is that we don't understand one another. And he was really very instrumental in trying to develop this importance of dialogue, importance of understanding, and this notion that in every interaction, we are bringing together different horizons, and hopefully these horizons will somehow be fused or be, be, begin to overlap as we listen to one another. I'm loving this because I think it's one of the lessons and journeys that I've definitely been through, um, you know, coming from a multicultural family um, and also coming from a multicultural church, right? Like the, that the necessity of listening 
but also just interacting with the world. And I will hopefully I'll have you get into this, you know, the, the kinds of dialogues that we have. And you mentioned this a little bit, uh, the different types, whether it's text or communities. Um, but I think it's so interesting because, you know, you said that, you know, the one thing that went wrong is that when we sinned, we misunderstood each other. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking how much we also use stuff like judgment and uh, prejudices or just coming to jumping to conclusions as a way to protect ourselves, you know, or, or as a way to kind of, it's a fear-based approach, right? Like we need to uh, shut down the conversation before it starts because we are afraid of the implications that might be uh, that, that it might make of our or of our own selves or what we might discover about our own selves or we're afraid that they're taking uh we're afraid to enter into new territories and so yeah it's interesting yeah no, you're absolutely right and sometimes in sociology people are referring to these like deepest convictions that we have uh, as plausibility structures right sociologists excuse me they sometimes argue uh, and sociologists of religion as well argue, like Peter Berger, for example, the one thing that people cannot stand, that cannot, they cannot handle is the absence of meaning. So people create these structures of meaning, and, and he refers to them as these plausibility structures. And once these plausibility structure, structures are being challenged, right? Once, once someone tries to undermine them, people are really start to freak out. Because this whole foundation on which structures of meaning are being built on starts to crumble. And there's nothing more disorienting than when these structures of meaning start to collapse. And that is actually when you see what's happening sometimes in churches. Like we wonder why is it that people so react so viscerally when you try to make some minor changes to the liturgical order or to worship order or, or some minor thing. Like, because what's happening is that people feel that something is crumbling under their feet. And, and in our consciousness, we do not always have a clear hierarchy. Okay, this belief that Jesus is God is like on the top of the hierarchy, right? And, you know, what kind of songs we sing at the worship service really is not on that same level. But in our consciousness, those things are often under... Um, intermingled so that people react as viscerally when you change some minor order worship service as if you were to challenge some major doctrinal belief. It's incredibly unsettling. It is incredibly difficult. So that is one aspect. And the second aspect why we react so viscerally when someone is challenging us, because implicitly, I believe, even if you're not consciously aware, we have this deep uh, deep, deep fear of, of exclusion, a deep fear of not belonging, deep fear of being pushed aside. And, and we, have, we are always in this, as you said correctly, in this self-protective mode of uh, you know, not to be somehow left on the side, not rejected, that our value social standing be diminished. And so we often get into this very protective mode. And you can ask people, I mean, you can even see for yourself, and I will admit it, right? When I have to, and I do it intentionally because I need this, when I listen uh, to uh, radio stations or podcasts or even cable news, which, which seem to articulate perspectives that, which articulate perspectives that I don't agree with, 
Like my whole body is reacting against it. I feel unwell. I, 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 don't, I don't like that. And so to be able to face these contravening opinions they, uh, that make us unwell, that unsettle us, that make us feel rejected, that undermine some of these plausibility structures, that is not easy. That is incredibly difficult. So I, I understand why people remain in their silos, in their echo chambers, and why this is happening in our fragmented culture today. I don't agree with it. I think it's very dangerous. It's very bad. But on a kind of psychological level, I totally get why this is happening. Be sure to stay tuned for part two of this conversation, where we dive a little deeper into the practicals of productive dialogue and what it means to interact with other. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Ante Jaranchik. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. I always appreciate your feedback on our shows, as well as suggestions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in, and see you next week. Future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in, and see you next week.